Now, last week, um, we heard from another of John's writings from the Revelation, his great vision in which Jesus had a message for the seven churches. And we heard how the church at Ephesus, one of those seven churches, had lost its first love, love of God and of neighbor. And Jesus warns them in his vision to John that this church were in danger of having their lampstand removed, that is, the church ceasing to exist. And Noel, who preached for us last Sunday, showed us a poignant image of present-day Ephesus and how the Christian presence there is almost um, invisible. It seems that their lampstand was removed. Paul's words to the Ephesian church major on God's love towards them, asking them to meditate on how high and wide and deep and long it is. You may know some, you may know a kid's chorus about something like that. It's possible that the Ephesians lost sight of loving God and loving neighbor, and that's why they had their lampstand removed. But it's also possible that they may have lost sight of God's love for them. This love, as John writes elsewhere in 1 John 4, is not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his life as a ransom for many. And John goes on to write, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God's love is prior. It comes first. It's not a response to our good behavior or our nice manners or even our repentance. It comes before all of that. Now, John is famously known as the apostle whom Jesus loved, a fact he was not shy about. And we all know that verse from earlier on in his gospel, those of us who have been in church for a while. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, some of you are saying it with me, will not perish but have eternal life. My question is, do we lose sight of this ourselves? How often do we ponder the nature and the grandeur of God's love for us, the sheer glory of being loved by God. We've been looking at this letter, this, it's not a letter, this prayer of Jesus's for a few weeks now. So I started a couple of weeks back at the beginning of chapter 17 of John's Gospel, which is the longest prayer that Jesus prays, which John records in full. And the beginning of the prayer, we saw that belief in Jesus changes us because of the way he prays for his disciples. Because they believed in him and come to know who he was, they sort of became new creatures, people that didn't fit into the world system anymore, people who were now from elsewhere in the way that Jesus was from elsewhere. Believers take on the characteristics of Jesus and over time the character of Jesus And now we belong with him, as they did. And today we see how deeply loved we are because we become, like Jesus, God's children. This section of the prayer that Chris just read for us is saturated in Jesus' love for his people, his love for them, his love for us. In Jesus' desire for us, 
to be caught up in the love that exists between him and his father. If you go with, with nothing else that I say today, I want you to go away with this thought that Jesus prays this prayer on the threshold of the most difficult thing anyone has ever done for anyone else. On the threshold of the most public act of love towards anyone. Revealing in the most horrible way, actually, he's hoisted up on a cross, naked, bruised and bloody, to show us how much he loves us. And the moment before this happens, before his arrest, he prays this prayer, not just for the people around him, but he includes us in that prayer, those who will come to believe through them. What Jesus did for us, from the moment of his conception to his final breath, was a walk a hike, if you like, through the terrain of human life, relationships, power plays, politics, pain, struggle, sickness, longing, ending in rejection and execution. And the last thing that he prays in this prayer shows his positive desire for us to be with him where he is, to not just be with us, but in us. Jesus didn't come to die for us because like he had to, like, oh, I better do something about these humans. He actually loves us. He loves us. He loves us. If you've grown up in the church or been in the church a long time, you're used to hearing this. And strange as it sounds, it can become a bit like wallpaper. Yeah, yeah, we know that. We know Jesus loves us. But today I want to invite you to actually sit and think about that, what that means, and to hear the passion in this prayer that he prays. Jesus prays that he wants us to be with him, not just those who walked and talked and ate and drank and did life with him then, but those of us who perhaps wish that we had, you know, wish we'd been there to see all the things, all the things that... Kate was asking the kids about that they've been learning about in kids' church. See him feeding the 5,000. Be there at the Last Supper when he talks about the bread and the wine being his body and his blood. Be there seeing him open blind eyes and making lame people walk and the sick well. I'm sure many of us have wished that we were there, but we're here. We're here, 2023, in Lindisfarne, in Hobart, wherever we're from wherever we are online, online. And in this prayer, we hear that Jesus wants all of us to be with him. We hear that he has given himself to us. He has given us the status of beloved son that he enjoys with God because he loves us. At the beginning of this gospel, John writes, he was in the world and the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So as we look at this final section of this final prayer, I want to focus on the fact that Jesus asks for us to experience the same unity of love between Jesus and the Father 
as a sign to the world that God sent him and that he loved the followers of Jesus as much as he loved Jesus himself, that God loves us as much as he loves Jesus. In verse 22, he says, The glory you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and you have loved them just as you have loved me. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking about this little word, just as, just as, kathos in Greek. Just as, we become just like Jesus when we believe in him progressively. And we see it again in the love that there is between him and the Father being our reality as well. In verses 1 to 5, at the beginning of the prayer, he prays for himself and for the successful completion of his task, for God to glorify him as he looks ahead to being hoisted up on this cross that I spoke of earlier. He describes how the followers that had, been, had actually been given to him by God, that somehow God chose us before we chose him. As I said before, God's love is prior. And he explains how he has given them eternal life, which is actually, as he describes it, a first-hand knowledge of God and of himself. Then in the next section, verses 6 to 19, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Jesus prayed for the followers that were with him. He'd been preparing them for a while for the fact that he was leaving. And then he prays that God would protect them because in putting their faith in him, they've now become vulnerable because they're not part of the world and they're part of the kingdom. And so he prays for God to protect them. And we saw a cause for comfort and hope and challenge for ourselves as we looked sort of over their shoulders and listened in on this prayer for them. But this section, this last seven verses from verse 20 to 26, are about us. They pull us into the spotlight. Because Jesus prays for those who will come to believe because of what his followers will go on to do. The good news of the gospel, or whatever brought us to church today, comes to us because this group spoke the word. They made disciples. Who made disciples? Who made disciples? For anything between 40 and 80 generations, depending on where you look on the internet. People trying to guess how many generations there have been since then. Many generations leading to us. So his prayer focuses on, this part of his prayer actually focuses on us. And it shows us that he doesn't see his coming death as the end. It's not a mistake, it's not an accident. It's just the next part of the journey. And he is anticipating more believers after his death. In fact, his death is the way to more believers. You might recall his words from chapter 12 of this gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus has already looked beyond his current disciples. Remember, they're all standing around listening to this prayer. He's spoken about where he was before the world was made and has asked God to return him there to his, the glory that he had with him. 
then he looks sort of beyond them into the future, speaking of future believers. Our faith in Jesus Christ is what gives us access to this incredible love that he speaks of. It's not a slight or insignificant thing, our faith. It's not childlike, wishful thinking that gives us something to cuddle and feel afraid or anxious or alone. It's not an emotional safety blanket. It's not emotional at all, actually. Faith is a decision to take and take on the words and the claims of Jesus to be Lord, just as his disciples did. To live as if God the Creator had actually sent his Son into the world to reconcile humanity to himself. As if this is a reality, not just a nice idea. Jesus wants everyone who believes to experience the closeness the oneness that he has with the Father. And this unity, this oneness, will make the believers just like Jesus and the Father, as I said before, but it will also show the world that Jesus was sent by God. We take a closer look. Just look at, if you've got a Bible with you, I'm going to be kind of around verses 21 to 26 here. In verse 21, he prays that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. In 22, that they will be one, just as we are. In 23, that Jesus will be in them and that the Father is, as the Father is in him. And then in 26, that he himself will be in them, along with God's love. I hope you can see how he's intertwining the idea of being one and being in In verse 24, Jesus says he wants us to be with him, to be with him where he is, with me where I am, to see the glory that he had from eternity past with God. The same glory he asked to be restored to him in the opening section. This glory is unbroken fellowship in the presence of God. This is what he's praying for, for us. So Jesus is asking for some very close closeness, isn't he? This kind of closeness sounds amazing, but possibly a little bit uncomfortable. A bit weird. Maybe even a bit frightening. But it's all about love. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, in an attempt to trip him up, which they liked trying to do while he was on earth. He replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So we see the primacy of love in how we are, in how we respond to God, and how we respond to each other. Horizontal love towards the people around us, and a vertical love towards God our Father. A dependence on God so that we can love in that way. But how does this commandment sound in the light of God's love for us, as expressed by Jesus in this prayer? 
in the light of his desire for union and intimacy with us. How does it feel to think that God actually wants us to be that close to him? The love of God is not just a proposition, it's not just an idea. It's a blood and flesh and bone reality. It bled for us, it died for us, it desires us in relationship. And when we know that we are loved in this way, in this sacrificial way, then it's possible, isn't it, to love other people if we know that we're loved in this way, to respond to that kind of love with love. The connection between this prayer and the Ephesian church, which I picked up at the beginning of this sermon, came out of the book I've been reading, which I got when I was in London earlier this month. One of the big themes of this trip was returning to our first love, which is for Jesus. And I've been reading this and rereading this since I got back. It's called Amazed by Jesus by Simon Ponsonby, and I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in just exploring this some more. There isn't a takeaway, go and do this application from this sermon today. It's a find a bit of time this week and just consider the fact that Jesus loves you this much. God's love for us is like a diamond. It is the treasure in the field. It is the pearl of great price. The fact that he considers us his treasure and was willing to go to the cross for us. And at the moment before all of that happened, his concern was for us to know the love that he knows from his Father. So I invite you to take time this week to contemplate the love that Jesus has for you, that God has for you, just as you are on your best day, on your worst day, when you're proud of yourself and when you're really not. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. I'm going to stand now and sing this, I believe, which is the creed. And as you're singing it, just think about what you're saying. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.